1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Donald Trump is sometimes called Teflon Don. But is that changing? Today, the former president's attorney was forced to testify before the grand jury investigating those classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Meanwhile, a laundry list of Trump's advisors have now been ordered to testify before the grand jury that's investigating January 6th. That includes Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff. We've got much more on that plus Gwyneth Paltrow taking the stand today. She's being sued over a ski accident, which she described in graphic terms.
2: I was skiing and two skis came between my skis, forcing my legs apart. And then there was a body pressing against me and there was a very strange grunting noise. So my brain was trying to make sense of what was happening. We'll talk about that. Also,
1: How many scientists does it take to unscrew an Oreo? Scientists at MIT unscrewed more than 1,000 Oreos in their quest to get a cookie with delicious creamy filling on both sides. They even built an Oreo meter to help. Tonight, these scientists will share their earth-shattering findings and explain why we need to know this. And also stick around for the end of the show, we've got our Friday night news quiz for you and for our guests. Okay, but let me uh, bring in our panel. Let's get started with what happened in the Trump investigations today. Here with me, we have Axiosis Jennifer Kingston, former New York Congressman Max Rose, former Senate candidate Joe Pinion, and former federal prosecutor Jim Walden. Welcome, all of you. Thanks so much for being here on a Friday. Happy Friday. Great to have you here. Okay. Let me put up for you right now the list of Trump aides who are now ordered to testify in this January 6th investigation. Here are the names. And this is, there's a lot of them. As you can see, I mean, these are familiar names to a lot of people. Mark Meadows, Stephen Miller, Ken Cuccinelli. So, um, Jim, let me start with you as our former federal prosecutor. Why aren't they covered by executive privilege as former President Trump had tried to do? Uh,
3: So executive privilege uh, protects the communications uh, and the president has to be the one to decide whether to do it. And so what the judge ruled today was that a former president does not have the ability to uh, to uh, invoke it.
1: But he was president during January 6th. So isn't he saying that they were privileged communications at that time?
3: They are. But it's like the CEO of a big company, right? If the CEO gets ousted... It's the new CEO that decides whether or not the company should keep the attorney-client privilege or waive it. So with the executive privilege, it's kind of the same thing. Is it the current president or is it the past president? That question is actually fascinating, but it hasn't been completely resolved by the Supreme Court yet. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh, in a recent decision from last year, signaled that there may be a number of Supreme Court justices that are willing to recognize some privilege of the old president. Hmm. And we'll see.
1: Mm. Go ahead, Joe.
3: I mean, I'm not a lawyer. So let's just
4: start by saying that, but it would seem counterintuitive uh, that a president could declare privilege and then subsequent to that, somebody else could waive the privilege on his behalf. So at the end of the day, uh, this process is going to go through the courts as all of this has done. Uh, It is the premise of many on the left that President Trump has taken a crime syndicate and latched it on to the executive branch, uh, that he is in many ways Al Capone, reincarnate with presidential powers, uh, and yet somehow uh, the indictments in many ways have yet to actually precede that. So uh, we are all waiting with bated breath uh, to see the perp walk that many people thought would happen uh, long before we even took the oath of office. And uh, and again,
1: he predicted it would happen, by the way, on the well, Tuesday. I mean, he said it was going to happen on Tuesday. We're
4: still waiting. Okay. But the campaign cash is, uh, is piling up.
1: <laughs> that's for sure. No, he has been fundraising on this. At last count, it was $1.5 million, but that's probably gone up yeah. because that was a few days ago. Um, Congressman, what do you think of this week as you've watched all these developments? Uh, this
5: week? Uh, the, the great Donald Trump hustle. It's interesting hearing your comments that you actually merged two separate trials and criminal proceedings associated with Donald Trump. That list of uh, former administration officials, all of whom have objected to testifying and appearing before any hearing associated with January 6th for a very simple reason. And that is that one that day was disgraceful, but their actions and their colleagues actions that day were also disgraceful and they are running for the hills. Very simple, straightforward rule in Washington, D.C. and in politics. When you have a strong argument, you talk about it. When you don't, you run away from it. And that's what they're doing. And that's what the Republican Party has been doing now for years. And that's why across the country, many of them lost elections that in a midterm that they thought was going to be a
1: Republican sweep. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still, and yet the polls suggest that Former President Trump is still popular with the Republican base, and he's about to have sure. his first rally tomorrow. So we'll see what, how much power he still has. Uh, Jennifer, your thoughts as you watch all the developments in the investigations.
6: The Supreme Court uh, last really weighed in on executive privilege in 1974 when President Nixon tried to invoke it to uh, keep the Watergate tapes away from the public. He lost that. Uh, 16 days after the Supreme Court ruled on that, he resigned. Three years later, when he was out of office, he again tried to invoke Uh, executive privilege as a former president. And while the Supreme Court ruled that former presidents did have uh, that right to continue it, they ruled against him in terms of keeping his materials private. Interestingly, uh, the events of this week that you just outlined amount to a real political Rorschach test. Just this week, uh, Monmouth University came out with its latest poll showing Donald Trump moving ahead of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in a theoretical matchup between the two uh, 41% of potential Republican voters said that they would pick uh, Donald Trump as their nominee versus 27% for, for uh, Ron DeSantis, and that's up from a statistical heat in February. And by the way, not all of this is
1: academic. There are real things happening um, in terms of threats and threats of violence uh, connected to all of this. So as you know, Donald Trump has been... Um, posting today on his own social media about, um, well, things that could be interpreted as threats or predictions of violence. He says he sees, quote, death and destruction if he's indicted. I assume this this is because he's scared of what's going to happen, but yet um, people are taking it seriously and the Manhattan DA's office has received ominous white powder as well as there have been bomb threats called into the court. So there's a feeling of, Things percolating.
3: Yes, I'm I'm going to stay in my lawyer's lane for a minute and leave the politics to other people. But what what's happening with Donald Trump at this moment is that the walls are closing in on him. Uh, there are three investigations at least. One of those investigations has at least three different strands to it. And this news going back to Meadows is terrible news for the president because those were really the architects of the January 6th insurrection. And for Donald Trump in the face of all of this to triple down, not double down, triple down by essentially uh, trying to create this toxic environment where people are called to arms, what did it result in? It resulted in the DA today, receiving a death threat in an envelope with white powder in it. This is going to continue. It's disgraceful, and he should stop. Look, I I think that we can all agree
4: uh, that the... Actions of January 6th were disgraceful, uh, that people used the flag of this nation to break glass at the People's House. uh, And whenever the time capsule of the 21st century is opened, uh, those days will be seared uh, into the memory of this great nation. I think we can also recognize that at this juncture, we probably need less politics, not more, when we talk about how do we get to the bottom of what occurred on that day and what has gone on or what has not gone on with President Trump. But I would argue that that has to be happening on both sides, that we had a January 6th investigation into that day that was highly partisan, uh, that the remedy by the left to investigate all manner of things related to President Trump have injected more politics into this, not less. So yes, let us all agree that the rhetoric needs to be toned down. That yes, President Trump, in his fervor to make sure that he can get through this primary, which people pretend hasn't actually started, uh, get, get done. That yes, things are being said that I would wish weren't being said, but I don't think that that actually means uh, that he is calling for violence. And I certainly don't think uh, that we can have one litmus test for what Republicans are allowed to say uh, politically. And then another litmus test for what Democrats like yeah. say I hear people.
1: you and i don't want to I don't want to suggest that he's calling for violence. I want to suggest that people hear things a certain way. So when he posts that there's going to be death and destruction if he's indicted, his supporters hear that. I mean they, I, we know this from January sixth because I, I, they I'll, said we were called here I, by the President I'll,
4: I'll say this um I think that again. You can say more about what the president didn't say on that day than what he did say on that day. And I think people who want to see this as a call to violence
3: are people who already have a certain perspective of President Trump. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. Death and destruction. Joe, everything you said, I agree with you 100 percent. Right. I definitely agree as an independent that we need less politics. But the man is lighting a match, and he did the same thing on January 6th, and not only has he not learned a lesson, he's doubling down. So I don't really see it as a prediction. Uh, I see, uh, hold uh, on, uh, I see it as a call to arms.
4: Uh, It's not a call to arms. And and let me just be very clear. All right, I can take out my phone on Twitter right now, and it's MAGA extremist this and MAGA extremist that, and half the people of the Republican Party are all evil, and MAGA describes at least five Republicans, or every Republican, depending on what day. Apparently there's one person writing all the tweets for a Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries. So I just think, again, if we're going to say that we need less heated rhetoric in our politics, I would agree with you. But the notion that we don't have this heated rhetoric coming from Democrats on a regular basis, I just think fails, Uh, uh, you know, strange. The the false equivalency is just stunning. But think about
5: your comments reveal the crazy town that we live in today. A decade ago, if someone in the presidential primary had been indicted or on the verge of being indicted. His opponents are cheering for it. Now they are coming to his defense. The base, leaders in the Republican Party, such as Joe yourself, are coming to his defense. Even after he incited a violent riot that left people dead, at what point will your party leave him behind? It's This is crazy. What,
4: is, what does that see so crazy? I, I think, again, we live in a nation where you are innocent until proven guilty. Everyone's talking about what happened with Alvin Bragg. And to be clear, any threats made the uh, yeah. Manhattan DA's office are disgraceful. But that doesn't change the fact that you are entitled to your day in court. So, yes, at this point, President Trump has been investigated for the better part of six years. There are court cases that are potentially pending, but they have not come to fruition. And so, yes, you have come okay. to your conclusion. Democrats have come to their conclusion. But the notion that we just get back to this ends justify the means approach to all things related to Donald Trump and the Republican Party, to me, uh, it's a little bit disingenuous.
1: Okay, stick around, everybody, because we have a lot more to talk about. Next, Utah is banning anyone under 18 from using social media after 1030 p.m. How are they going to enforce that? We'll talk about it. All right. Meanwhile, Utah's governor signing a bill this week to protect young people on social media. The law requires social media platforms to give parents access to their children's accounts. It also imposes a curfew, banning people under 18 from using their accounts between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. The law does not go into effect until next March. My panel is back with me. Okay. let me just put up again what this law would do. It requires social platforms give parents access to their kids' accounts. It bans all ads for minors. As I said, it imposes that curfew from 6 p.m. to 6.30 for anyone under 18, and it requires social media platforms to conduct age verification for all Utah residents. Jennifer, um I'm, I'm interested in this. I mean, lots of people decry the dangers of social media. It sounds like Utah is really trying to do something about it. How will they police
6: the curfew and things like that? That's exactly the question that came to my mind. But it's interesting that the states are taking a lead on this, particularly in the context of uh, uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill drilling TikTok uh, like a uh, geopolitical chew toy this week. <laughs> uh, Washington state a few months ago filed a lawsuit against the major social media platforms led that uh, there's an epidemic of teen mental health problems that are linked to social media. Uh, I did some reporting around this at the time and found that uh, studies have shown that there is, in fact, uh, there are direct links between depression in teenage girls and social media platforms, but there is also debate within the psychological community about whether social media use is truly an addiction. Uh, I recently interviewed the uh, pediatrician who uh, leads Boston Children's Hospital's digital wellness lab. Uh, His name is Michael Rich, and he calls himself the Mediatrician because he's the expert on these topics. He argues that uh, heavy social media use isn't necessarily an addiction, but is rather a symptom of an underlying problem that a teen may have, such as ADHD or depression Mm. to begin with.
1: That's a different take on it. I mean, that's I have to get my mind around that possible model because it does seem... Like an addiction, it acts like an addiction, where they just pick up the phone and you see them scrolling, and you know they're sort of consumed with it. But as a former legislator, sure. how how will this be policed?
5: Well, first of all, anything that uh, leads to people not seeing Joe's tweets, I uh, avidly support. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding, including uh, Joe. I'm just kidding. But comments. but in, in, all, in all seriousness, though. <laughs> Fifty years from now, I believe that people will look at our use of social media in the same way that today we look at how people used to smoke around their children. This is a technology and a program that is designed with one explicit purpose, which is to make people addicted to it. And I believe it's particularly harmful for young people. So you
1: like this law? In oh, uh, uh,
5: absolutely, absolutely. And I and I think that. The federal government should step in and do everything it can to protect young people from this technology. Remember, these algorithms are designed to push people towards that which they are interested in. It pushes people towards hateful, divisive content. You you have to look no further than the fact that the very inventors of this technology keep their children Away from it, so I uh, you all
6: you need to I, know. I, I, th- I, I think this is the right thing, Max. One interesting aspect of the Utah law, I think, that was signed, actually instructs the social media platforms to uh, uh, deactivate uh, features that are considered addictive for children. Things that uh, uh, show you more. Uh, TikToks about suicide, for example, right. if you start searching for that. And those are some of the things that have been the most harmful and have been the source of uh, uh, so many lawsuits by parents for against them. these big platforms. A- any downside, you think, to this law?
4: Well, look, I, I think that if there is any downside, which I would agree with the congressman, that yes, uh, this is a step in the right direction, it's the fact that once again, from the politicians, we see virtue signaling, uh, that we have policies that have been written on the back of a napkin without actually having a thoughtful explanation of how you're actually going to implement these laws. And so I think at the end of the day, yes, uh, we recognize that screen time is addictive, that people with means take great lengths to reduce the amount of screen time that their children are having. And yet it's always the children that come from disadvantaged, backgrounds that don't get those best practices. And I think, again, we have to talk about the fact that there has been a reluctance on Capitol Hill uh, to deal with anything from the antitrust legislation uh, to the dangers that we know are emerging from this. But you
1: think that both Republicans and Democrats are virtue signaling when it comes to social media? I I think,
4: think? not just social media, in general. When you're talking about all the cultural issues, uh, there's a lot of virtue signaling legislation, people writing things down on paper that really can't actually be implemented effectively, but they do ignore To prove a point, but I do think again, we this is a step in the right direction to start crafting policies with the children. They have a year to
1: figure it out. I'm not sure that it's not going to work yet. I mean, they have a year until it goes well. I
4: I think you know, trying to implement a curfew for social media, that's a bit ridiculous, but I think certainly we can start talking about the fact that we already have laws on the books that are supposed to prevent us from collecting data from children, we're not actually enforcing those laws in an effective manner ahead. and
3: beyond. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, I was going to answer your original question, how are they going to enforce it, right? Uh, I have two answers to that. Number one, they never will have to because it's probably not going to survive constitutional scrutiny. But number two, even if it did, they're not going to enforce it. They're going to require the tech companies to. And I wouldn't like to be the compliance officer of a tech company with 50 different states passing 50 different laws, and this is where Joe's absolutely right. The federal government needs to step in. This has to be controlled by an agency. There has to be one set of rules. And, uh, and I think that that is a sensible thing to deal with all the harms uh, that Jennifer talked
1: about. Really interesting. Thank you all for those perspectives. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is going to hold his first 2024 campaign rally tomorrow in Waco, Texas. Why there? We discuss. The 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians and federal authorities just outside of Waco, Texas, was 30 years ago this month. The standoff began in February 1993 and ended in mid-April with a deadly fire that consumed the compound. 76 people, including 25 children, were killed. This is how CNN covered it at the time.
7: As we've watched this M60 vehicle, this uh, combat engineering vehicle, uh, Make large holes in the side of this building and pump uh, tear gas in there. This is a this is a roaring fire here. This uh, and I don't know if there are any fire trucks even. I haven't seen any fire trucks come up. Um, I don't I don't know if there are any fire trucks uh, at the compound even. This this fire is uh, completely out of control, and as the chief said, uh, obviously they won't be able to do much uh, except perhaps put out some smoldering embers there, it appears, and and still no indication, no sign that anybody is coming out.
1: Since then, the incidents become an enduring rallying cry for anti-government extremists. And tomorrow, former President Trump will hold his first campaign rally for 2024 in Waco, Texas. I'm back now with my panel. We're joined also by New York Times reporter Charles Homans. Charles, you've been covering this story, I mean, about uh, President Trump's rally that he's going to be holding. So what's he telegraphing?
8: Well, I think you know, the important thing to know here is that Waco has attained in, in the 30 years since this happened a real sort of status um, <clears throat> on the far right. And, and the symbolism, you know, it's, I, I think one of the Texas newspapers in an opinion an op-ed today sort of denouncing Trump for holding his rally there called it an Alamo, which I think is right. I mean, it's a sort of pilgrimage site for a lot of groups on the far right, the Oath, cre- the oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the three percenters. And, you know, Trump, when you talk to his campaign, of course, says that's not why they're holding it there. They say it's a nice central location in the middle of Texas, equidistant from a number of cities. But the, you know, I think the symbolism of it to a lot of people is very apparent.
1: And certainly his supporters get it. I mean, one of the people that you interviewed, here's a quote from them. uh, Waco was an overreach of the government. And today, the New York district attorney is practicing an overreach of the government again, said Sharon Anderson, a retiree from Tennessee who is traveling to Waco for Saturday's event, her 33rd Trump rally. Joe? Uh,
4: I really don't know where to begin here. Uh, Look... uh Waco, Texas, is still part of America, last I checked. Uh, last I checked, uh, the people of Waco uh, were not followers of David Caress. Even most of the Branch Davidians then and whatever remains well, of them We're not suggesting today, that, Joe, but politicians
1: not- choose their backdrop for a reason. They do. They signal things, I, look, as you've said.
4: I, I, look, I, I, let's just be very clear. We're, we are now at the... Be- 10.30 in about 50 seconds. We still haven't talked about Ron DeSantis. We're continuing to talk about President Trump, which is what President Trump wants. Whether you agree with the virtue signaling or not, he has achieved his overall endeavor. I don't think that President Trump is trying to tell people that we should remember David Caress and follow in his you first know, so Why do you think he's frozen away, I do think that away, perhaps that they're signaling to the fact that we're dealing in times where we do have government overreach. We also do know that whatever David Caress did, which was an abomination, those children that died in that inferno, we also know that the federal government botched the raid and did many things. Yes, in the raid but I think terrible. that
1: you've so, just agreed that that perhaps he's signaling government overreach. I mean, I think that I, that
4: I, was I, the I, point. I, no, but I, I I think the two there's a correlation. And also a distinction that has to be made when you actually deal with the fact that all of these things are not just one giant Donald Trump fire and doom, death and destruction ball picture that you're trying to paint. I mean, I just think that 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 has to be said. We can't just keep bouncing around here, where it's just like it's the anniversary of Waco and David Carrez. therefore Donald Trump is
1: saying death and destruction. I just think that that's a disingenuous argument, okay, and not what most people. I hear you, are. but you're connecting them. Those were two separate. I hear you, Joe, but those were two <laughs> separate segments. Go ahead.
5: Matt. I mean, we should play a game. What does Donald Trump have to do for you to criticize him? But the truth of the matter is that there is a overarching narrative and point here. This is not the first time Donald Trump has done something like this. Remember Tulsa doing a rally on June 10th. This is not the first time that the Republican Party has done something like this. Think back to the ways in which Reagan announced his camp, his presidential campaign in Mississippi uh, But why are they doing this? And I think so much of this goes back to a lesson that was learned from Mitt Romney's 2012 loss to Barack Obama, in which people like Donald Trump believed, rightfully or otherwise, that it was because of a depressed base turnout. And they will never turn on this base that they believe exists. And that is why these rallies are continuing. And that is why they are continuing to stoke divisions and be as divisive as humanly possible It is because not just that he is a sociopath, but also that he believes he is politically expeditious. are, are, are,
4: Are the people with him, are they bad people? Is that your position? No. Well, it seems to be your position. It seems to be... No, it it does. Because on some basic level, if everything that Donald Trump does is evil and that evil is a reflection on the people, then at some point you're effectively saying what Joe Biden has insinuated, what so many people on the left insinuated, there is some deficiency with the people. And so I think at some point, if we're going to have a real honest conversation about this, is that, yes, there is division in politics. Yes, people have to turn out their base. And yes, sometimes there are people that do things that the outside looking in might think is a bad thing but i think overall if you're just talking about how do we have an honest conversation about our politics it's disingenuous to keep acting like democrats are these beautiful people well, who only want good things Joe, which is what they're yeah,
6: speaking it seems logical to think that uh, donald trump might like to connect connect the dots between the dramatic conflagration at the Branch Davidian compound and his own travails at Mar-a-Lago, where he feels besieged by federal prosecutors circling around him. Uh, Don't forget the 51 days uh, before the culmination at at David Koresh's compound included 900 law enforcement officials standing outside. There were armored tanks there. The uh, FBI played uh, barraged the compound with unbearably loud music for days to try to uh, get people out of there. They negotiated for 60 hours straight with David Korish. It was a really dramatic event that I'm sure he'd like to evoke. Uh, and, look, I just, I just, I, just I don't I, think
4: the Branch quickly Davidians Quickly, I want to get Charles, it is uh, Charles's uh, Republican. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I, <laughs> I don't want to get the Branch Davidians wrapped up in what Republicans are standing up Fine. for every single but, day. But, I think but, that's a stretch.
1: But Charles, the, the people that you've interviewed about this, his supporters... They get it right. They're, I mean, they understand what this symbolism means.
8: Certainly, I think some people definitely told me that. And I think, I mean, it's worth you know remembering also that this was a very polarizing incident at the time. It was the subject of congressional investigations, uh, Department of Justice investigations, and it was something that really factored heavily in the midterms in 1994. And you know, when I spoke with Newt Gingrich about this, who was a staunch critic of the you know the federal response at the time, he sort of mentioned that it you know did have a broader symbolism on the right, the federal government, you know, run amok, as he put it. And so I think that there's people who may not connect at the level of the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, but do see it as sort of a resonance um, of, of what, you know, the way that uh, Donald Trump has portrayed his sort of situation today.
1: OK, thank you for your reporting. Really appreciate you bringing that to us. Thank you all for the discussion. Meanwhile, there's a Florida principal out of a job because a sixth grade... Well, one of the reasons might be because a sixth grade class was shown this. Michelangelo's David. Oh, and that's Gwyneth Paltrow right there. She's defending herself in court. Is there a connection? Oh, we'll make one. (laughs) Get dressed, Marge. You've got to lead our protest
9: against this abomination. Mm, But that's Michelangelo's David. It's
0: a masterpiece.
9: (gasps) It's filth. It graphically portrays parts of the human body, which practical as they may be, are evil. But I like that statue.
0: (gasps) Is it a masterpiece
10: or just some guy with his pants down? That's our topic tonight on (laughs) SmartLine.
1: Once again, the Simpsons predict the future. That was their take on Michelangelo's David and the battle over censorship back in 1990. And today the controversy is back. Some Florida parents are angry about the David's inclusion in a sixth grade lesson and their principal has been forced to resign as a result. I'm back with my panel. Okay, so this is a spicy headline. I recognize because it's, you know, Michelangelo's David and he's nude, but it's also it's a little bit more bureaucratic than we're making it sound. She didn't know the principal didn't send out a notification to the parents and she was supposed to send out a notification. And that's why they say she was fired. What do you think is really going on to
3: I think it's crazy that we live in a country where in some places you have to send a parental notification for a classic piece of... uh,
1: Well, they're sixth graders. Do you think that they should have, that the David should have just been sprung on them?
3: I think that there are circumstances where parents should probably just back off and let teachers do their jobs. And the thing that terrifies me about this is because there is a teacher who's probably a really good teacher. She's apparently an, an, an evangelical Christian uh and now she doesn't have a job because she showed a statue that is an iconic piece of history because it shows his penis that seems crazy to me
6: Jennifer I can picture myself as a giggly sixth grader, but there are very uh, big, important <laughs> issues here. The uh, head of the school board in Tallahassee told the local paper that uh, parents' rights are supreme. And that we can see spreading nationally, where uh, parents are flexing their muscles about what they do and don't want to see in a curriculum. Uh, on Thursday, the American Library Association came out with uh, its latest Uh, Research showing that a record number of books were banned last year, the most in its 20-year history, and uh, this is a worrisome sign, I think.
1: It's interesting because um, the board, the chair of the school board there in Tallahassee, the classical school board chair, was saying that um, 97% of the sixth grade parents were fine. With this lesson, but there they did receive a few complaints from others. But it is possible, Congressman, that had she sent out the notification, whether or not you believe the notification is just sort of an onerous piece of protocol that can be argued, but she might still have her job if she'd sent out that notification to parents.
5: Yeah, well, I think one day she'll be happy that she's no longer teaching. The children of a bunch of crazy people. I mean, well, this only three is- <laughs>
1: percent didn't like it. Ninety-seven percent of the six yeah, parents were
5: okay I, I mean, with it. I mean, you know, and I say this as a as a millennial myself. This is when this is what happens when millennials become parents. I mean, could you be more neurotic? That you know, it, it's, it's you would be fine with penis, a six. I mean, <laughs> I'd be fine with my three-year-old seeing that, that sculpture. I mean, this is this is absurd. This is absurd. I'm stunned by it. But I'm wondering if it is also representative of this interesting trend amongst many parents, many of which are tilted to be more conservative, to say that educational institutions need to be safe spaces whereby they protect their children from anything that they deem either disagreeable or potentially a bit profane. It's a worrisome trend.
10: Yeah.
4: Look, it's art. It's art. I think we should all be able to agree on that. Uh, We've sat at this desk many times and said that uh, the pushback is always more extreme than the issue itself, particularly uh, when other people mock the issue and then call you crazy. Uh, so, look, I-, I think at the end of the day, uh, this is an unfortunate reality uh, brought to us by the fact uh, that there seem to be things happening in schools that people pretend aren't happening or people suggest aren't happening. And in the end, you end up with two parents out of 100 parents uh, crying foul and getting a poor, innocent teacher fired. So uh, I think that that's just an unfortunate state of affairs of where we're at today, and hopefully uh, we can start listening to people on both sides saying, hey, I want to know what's going on with my children in the classroom and not treat them as if their concerns should be pushed aside.
1: Yes, and furthermore, if there were just three, let's pretend there were three parents out of this class that didn't like it, their kids could have sat out that lesson. It didn't have to, you know, escalate to this. Their kids could have well, sat out I also think, right? Uh, to, to the no. point,
5: I also think You shouldn't get a teacher fired. I mean, this no, that's is... That's my
1: point. It, I mean, it, it, nobody it, should be
5: fired. Yes, they are crazy. I'll say it again. I mean, this is... They, they, they should have a job. They should have a life. The teacher should be allowed to teach. And the worst okay. case scenario here, this kid comes home and they have a conversation at home.
1: Yes, but again, I just have to say that the school board chair says she was not let go because of Michelangelo's David's lesson. The school is two and a half years old. Every year we show that picture and it's taught to our sixth graders. It's because she didn't notify the parents. So we'll let it stand right there. Um, We have to move on to this very important story, guys. And I know you've been waiting for this. MIT researchers conducting this very important experiment, trying to determine if there is a way to get that cream filling on both sides of the Oreo when you're twisting it off? I mean, it's the age-old question. So we're going to speak with those scientists, and then we're going to try it ourselves. All right, everyone, let's get in our time machines and go back to my favorite decade, the 80s. You're sitting on your couch watching TV, and this commercial comes on.
11: Oh, 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 my best friend and an Oreo cookie. She loves the crunchy chocolate. I like the creamy middles. Been eating them this way since we were very little. We'll always be friends with O-R-E-O.
1: <laughs> that was fantastic. Do you remember trying to split open the Oreo? Well, a group of MIT researchers had the same challenge. And they used the vast resources of MIT to put it to the test, dubbing the Oreo science, oreology. And two of those MIT researchers, Crystal Owens and Max Van, join me now. Guys, thank you very much for being here and sharing your earth-shattering findings with us. Crystal, I know this was your idea, so I'll begin with you. How much marijuana was involved in you coming up with this idea?
9: Uh, so the study was actually published on uh 19 last year. Oh. So the timing was very good. So the day after it came out, everyone could celebrate. Oh. <laughs> That's
1: fantastic. Um, Max, um, how many cookies, Oreos, did you eat in the name of research?
5: I've lost track, honestly, probably <laughs> like close to
4: 30 to 50. Maybe not as many as you think because you get sick of them after a while.
1: <laughs> Crystal, seriously, uh, did. They, this was born out of your childhood challenge, right, of trying to separate the Oreo and figuring out which side was most delicious.
9: Yes, because it's so frustrating because you want to have a cookie that has a hard wafer and some soft cream. You don't want to get one wafer that's just bare and one that has a lot of cream. And so when you're trying to figure out fluid mechanics like that's what I'm studying for my Ph.D., why not like apply that to like a real problem? Um,
1: we have a congressman, a former congressman, with us here tonight, and he was wondering how much taxpayer money was spent on this um, experiment. Do you know?
9: Um, I uh, so this was kind of a side project. Mm-hmm. My my main project is. Mm. Yeah. We'll come back to it. All right.
1: Obviously we'll come, we'll come, we'll get the answer to that. We'll research that. But in the meantime, I know that this also has some practical application. It's not just about Oreos. So what else, I mean, what do we need to know in our real lives that you found out about this?
9: So the physics that describes how Oreos come apart, describe like all sorts of soft materials. So if you're looking at like Houses in landslides, like sliding off the hill uh, in uh, California, that's like exactly the same physics as like a wafer coming off on the cream on like another wafer. OK, so just understanding how this works is very important.
1: <laughs> of course. And so, guys, what answer the age old question? What is better to, to twist it or to tug it? To twist it. Oh, <laughs> to of twist course. it. OK, so that's what you found to twist it. And see, I used to consider this perfect. If you could twist it off perfectly, but you're saying that it would be better if it was half and half. Mhm.
12: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's the best way to get it to be half and half?
5: So it turns out it doesn't really matter what technique you use. You can twist it quickly. You can twist it slowly. You can compress it while you're twisting it. You can pull it while you're twisting it. It doesn't really matter. Um, some things that might happen if you pull it, you might shatter the wafer, but it doesn't really matter because either way, you're most likely going to get
3: the cream on one side.
1: Um, okay, Crystal, uh, Max, thank you. Stand by because our panel is trying this right now. I feel like um, you <laughs> destroyed yours. <laughs> you, heard you heard me, quiet. You heard me, curse. You are a horrible scientist. You've destroyed I your... You win. You I win. win. Look at this. Oh my God. Look at oh, what. Well. You hold out yours up, Jennifer. You were able to get some of the delicious cream Mm -hmm. on both sides. You've impressed our scientists, Crystal and Max. Um, You have also done well, Joe. I. So,
4: look. The world can't be like this.
1: (laughs) Joe, look. Look look at how well Joe Joe has done with these two here. But Joe also is the person who, when we handed him the Oreo, said, Are we really doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I feel that you were excited, Jim.
3: I used to actually take uh, all of it off and make like the quadruple stuff because I love the I like them. I like the combination, but I want the whole thing.
6: So I did that, too. And if you take the empty wafers off and put them back in the package, it's really disappointing to the next person who
7: opens it. <laughs> wow. I didn't do that.
6: Wow.
1: That must have really been a good prank on your siblings or whoever. I want to know if the gluten-free ones have different physical co- properties. Do the gluten-free ones, our scientists, I'm sure, oh. know, do the gluten-free ones have different physical properties, Crystal and Max?
9: Just a little bit. They're actually pretty similar.
6: All right. Let's so. not get into the birthday cake yeah. Oreos. So appreciate so cool.
1: that. All right. Um, thank you, guys, very much for sharing your research with us and for giving us a mid-show snack. We really appreciate it, Crystal Owens and Max Van. Thank you. All right. Meanwhile, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow taking the stand in a ski collision trial today. What she's saying and why Taylor Swift came up. We have some breaking news right now. A destructive tornado in Mississippi tonight. The National Weather Service says this tornado has caused damage in Silver City and Rolling Fork. That's in the western part of the state. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency says they have no reports of fatalities. Let's go to Chad Myers in the Weather Center. What are you seeing, Chad?
13: A storm, a tornado that was on the ground and still is for now looks like 75 miles The worst of it right through the town of Rolling Fork, population about 1,800. I've seen pictures on Twitter and on the Internet, and they're disturbing. This was a very large tornado. It continued on the ground, moved through a couple other towns, but Rolling Fork is the true center of the destruction at this hour. Crews are on their way. Police are asking for as many ambulances as we can get. This is the storm right here through Rolling Fork and then on up toward Belzoni. It was on the ground as a likely an EF3 or greater for a very long time. This is the color-coded Doppler velocities showing the circulation right over that town. And it may still be on the ground right now. It was about 10 minutes ago as the storm has moved 75 miles to the northeast. This is the area we're watching, this highlighted area here in Orange. This is where most of the weather will be tonight. There will be more weather, and there are likely going to be more tornadoes. The problem is it's 10.30, 10 o'clock there in the central time zone. People are sleeping. You need to get away from this storm. Many of these tornadoes that we've seen tonight are underground tornadoes. You need to get underground to survive them. That's how large they are And they're still going on right now, Allison. This is going to be a deadly night, I'm afraid. I've seen pictures here in Rolling Fork, and Mm -hmm. and it looks bad.
1: Okay, Chad, come back to us as soon as you have any updates. Thank you very much for that breaking news. Mm -hmm. Now we want to turn to Gwyneth Paltrow taking the stand today, testifying in her own defense in a lawsuit that accuses her of skiing into a 76-year-old man on a beginner slope. He says he suffered broken ribs and a traumatic brain injury as a result but Paltrow says it was his fault, not hers. So there's a lot to discuss. Let's bring in our panel. We have our defense attorney, Joey Jackson here, former Democratic Congressman Max Rose, psychotherapist Robbie Ludwig and former U.N. spokesperson Hagar Shamali. Also joining us is Stan Gale, who is a ski and snow sports safety consultant. So, Stan, I want to start with you because you've consulted on 200 ski collision cases, as I understand it. So how is this one that Gwyneth Paltrow uh, was involved in? How's, that, how's it stacking up for you?
14: What do you mean by stacking up? Meaning do you think when you hear
1: her on the stand, in fact, you know what, actually let me play her on the stand so that we all can hear this. Let me play for you how she explained what happened on the stand and then you can analyze it. Listen to this.
2: I was skiing and two skis came between my skis, forcing my legs apart. And then there was a body pressing against me and there was a very strange grunting noise. So my brain was trying to make sense of what was happening. I thought, Am I, is this a practical joke? Is someone like doing something perverted? This is really, really strange. My mind was going very, very quickly, and I was trying to ascertain what was happening.
15: OK. Um, I think you said, I didn't know if it was an accident, but he was groaning and grunting in a very disturbing way.
2: Yes, there was a sort of groan coming out of his mouth.
15: Okay. You said this man was behind me on the mountain. My knee and our skis were still sort of tangled up.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that yes? Yes. All okay. right.
15: Okay. Our bodies were almost spooning, and I moved away quickly.
2: Yes. Okay. So,
1: Stan, what do you think of her description of what happened? Stan, are you frozen? I think we've I think we've lost him for a second. Oh, Stan, can you hear me? All right. Well, uh,
14: her description, uh, her description, uh, sorry, there's a bit of a time lag here. Um, The description uh, matches uh, what one would expect uh, in a ski collision where there's some person in front and another person in back. And uh, if the skis uh, go through a person's legs, obviously, that person is overtaking the skier in front of them.
1: I mean, if you're on a green run, which this was, and I believe we even have some video of this. It's called the Bandana Run. This is at Deer Valley. It sounds like she was having a ski lesson, so she's, it sounds like not a great skier. Um, people hit each other. Th- this happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens, certainly, on ski runs. And so what what separates a regular ski collision... Um, from negligence and from it turning into a court case like this?
14: Well, uh, when their negligence, negligence is involved, there is one person who, who causes the incident to happen. And it's very important when skiers ski to maintain a lookout ahead, to survey the slope ahead, uh, to be in control of their course and speed, to be able to avoid people or objects or children or fences or things like that that are on the ski slope. By maintaining a lookout ahead, you can gauge your speed, you can make turns, you can slow down. And uh, that's what constitutes negligence if you're negligent in those responsibilities. Those responsibilities are put forth in the skier's responsibility code in order for people to understand and act accordingly when they're overtaking people or skiing too close to people to prevent this sort of incident from happening.
1: I mean, you're never supposed to ski out of control, but as I understand it, actually, in further uh, reading, she's an intermediate. She describes herself as an intermediate skier. But you can, of course, get out of control and fall. So from what you've heard thus far from her testimony and in the case, who do you think was at fault here?
14: (music) Well, you know, I've only heard piecemeal testimony, and uh, it's very important as a professional investigator not to take a side in the case until um, I've reviewed all the evidence as well as done my own investigation. And by the way, I'm familiar with the Bandana Slope. I investigated another ski collision there about 10 years ago. Uh, So I'm very familiar with uh, that particular slope. Uh, So I'm not... Going to uh, take aside at this point. All I can say is that if uh, the skis went, uh, the defendant's skis, uh, excuse me, the plaintiff's skis went between her legs, that puts her in front and that puts the onus and the responsibility on the plaintiff to avoid her. That's okay. very clear.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, uh, stand, stand by, if you would. I want to bring in my panel. Uh, hi, guys. That was interesting to hear uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Here's another moment from her. Basically, they were asking if she stuck around after the accident to see if he, who she says collided into her, was okay. So let's listen to that.
2: I think you have to keep in mind when you're the victim of a crash, right, your psychology is not necessarily thinking about the person who perpetrated it.
15: Okay. So the answer to my question is, no, no, you did not inquire. Okay. Did you ever um, ask, hey, how was that guy that ran into the back of me? Is he okay? Do you ever ask anybody from Deer Valley about that?
2: I did not, because at the time I did not know that he had sustained injuries like that. I thought it was very minor on the day. And you didn't stick around long enough to find that out? I stuck around long enough for him to say he was okay to stand up, that he told Mr. Christensen he was okay.
1: Um, Robbie, Mm -hmm. what do you think of, of this testimony and hearing Gwyneth Paltrow on the stand?
16: Well, I think she was what we expect Gwyneth Paltrow to be. She's icy, um, a bit imperious, but I also found her to be honest and authentic. And I liked that she didn't appear to be acting and falsely warm. She described herself as she was during those moments, and I think she's very believable. She's not warm and fuzzy. She may not be that empathic, but it also sounds like the events unfolded um, as she described them at that moment in time.
1: It's so interesting, I think, to hear her on the stand because she's an actress. We normally see her playing a part. We normally see her in a glamorous, on a red carpet, mm-hmm. in a glamorous gown. And she, you know, we see her in glasses. We see her when she was sitting in the, uh, not on the stand, but just in the general uh, at the table. She, you know, she she didn't necessarily look like G- Gwyneth Paltrow the way we imagine, And it's just interesting to hear her in this kind of everyday situation. But what about, Robbie, one more question. Her description of the first collision, where she was describing, his legs came through mine, I heard some grunting, I thought that there was a practical joke, or maybe a pervert was doing something.
16: Mm-hmm. Well, she's in Hollywood, and we know her experience with Harvey Weinstein, and also I think she's been the victim of stalking, and she is a celebrity, so you have to think, you know, people can abuse you or stalk you, and and, and you could totally see where she would have that experience and wonder, is this deliberate, is somebody sexually trying to do something to me and then she got her bearings and realized that it was an accident. So I thought it was a very powerful testimony and, and well done on her part. Okay.
7: Yeah, I agree. You know, a lot of people accuse her of being out of touch with reality, and and she can be, but she's also not known to be nasty or cruel or dishonest. Quite the contrary, she is very open about her life. She is very candid and blunt about a range of things—things things that her company sells, um, you know, her her wellness routine, as she calls it, where where really she doesn't eat much. You know, she's she's open about all these things. So I don't see why she would behave any differently. Um, I was looking at it as though I was a jury you know, part of the jury, jury of peers. And I thought as well that she was being quite honest. What I thought was a shame is that, you know, you- I had to wonder, you have to ask yourself, would this, uh, would the plaintiff be acting this way or going down this path the way they're going down if she weren't who she is? Mm-hmm. You have to ask that question. And I don't know but-
1: um, Joey, you're the, you're our lawyer here. Um, you know, so one interesting point about this is that there was a GoPro video, and the so the so-called victim here um, named Sanderson. Um, had a was wearing a GoPro and there was video, but they can't find that video.
10: Very interesting.
1: What does that tell you? Uh,
10: It tells me that if there was a video that supported my cause and my lawsuit, I'd find it somewhere. So I'm looking at a few things here. The first thing I'm looking at is context. Right. The second thing certainly I'm looking at is her actions. And then I'm looking at her ask. What is her demand? So let's look at the context. She's out with her family. Her two children, her boyfriend at the time, who becomes her husband, and his two children. Does that suggest that it's going to be a day where I'm wallowing up the skis and going around? I'm going to be attentive to my family, making sure everything's okay. My kids are good. Our kids are our life. Everybody okay? And of course, I want to impress my future right uh, partner, right? I mean, her her husband. And so that's the context. Seems a bit strange that she would be all wild as she's being described. It's a beginner slope, so that that. Is kind of off to me, and then you pivot to her actions. Right after it happened, she was pretty pissed off. You know, when you get into an accident, it's not your fault. Generally, human nature. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. My bad. I'm, you know, can we forget about this? And then, of course, her ask. She's asking for a dollar. And she certainly has the money. It's $300,000. She couldn't just say for nuisance she's value. She's being sued for $300,000. Exactly. You're saying that she could have settled. That's right, Allison. I mean, it's 300000 She. I don't want to go to court. I don't want experts. I don't want the attention. Right. Take $100,000. Leave me alone. And so it just seems to me that uh, she is innocent, as charged, and she's Okay.
1: Sure. Uh, Max, do you have anything burning to say about this? Because I have to move uh, on to another high-profile case. Everyone's
10: lying. I don't trust the family. <laughs> so.
1: On that note, we move on. So, Politics. So the other, another very high-profile case this month, as we all know, was the Murdoch um, trial. And he was convicted of killing his um, wife and son. Now they're auctioning off... His belongings, the belongings from their, you know, hunting lodge or their, I guess that's what you call it. Um, and so today was the auction. Here are some of the things that were auctioned off from the Murdoch house. Um, it was a Yeti cup. It typically retails for $35. It went for $400. A beer cozy. Those, I believe, retail for a dollar. I mean, r- roughly, or they can be made for that. And that was auctioned off for 500 dollars Mounted antlers from this lodge, uh, $10,000. A furniture set, $30,000. So, guys, uh, let me start with with you, Congressman. (laughs) What do you think the interest is in having a a piece of memorabilia from a high-profile but macabre family story? These
5: are some creepy people that are are doing this. I mean, imagine the, 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 the tour of the house. Oh, and this is, you know... My memorabilia for murder scenes, you know? Come on, let's go hang out and have a drink. I, I would say, though, that, and this is something that is, I think, part of the fabric of American culture and society, is we, we have this cult of celebrity, and it actually does not matter what the root cause of the celebrity is. It is just that everyone is talking about it, and everybody wants a piece of this. It's notoriety. It's notoriety, because this is, at, if you actually stop to think about it, this is gruesome stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's awfully weird and creepy and all the rest. But nonetheless, it was in the papers, it was on TV, and now you have a little piece of it. There's nothing probably more American than that.
1: Joey, as yeah. a criminal defense attorney, I'm sure you've seen this. What do you think is behind it?
10: Um, there's, there's a few things. So one, I think Max is right on point in terms of the, the celebrity culture and people wanting to be a part of that and just being so fascinated by it. The second thing I think is just It's historic. And I think people want to buy into the history. There was a moment in time where there was this madman or whoever you, however you want to describe him, who did this to his family. Can you believe that? And I'm part of that. And then the second or the third thing I'll say is people could be a a little nutty.
1: (laughs) (laughs) True words never spoken on this panel. Uh, Robbie, what do you think the psychology of this is? It's called
16: murderabilia. Mm. So there's a word for it. And usually (laughs) it's when people buy what serial killers make. But it is a a part of the story, right? It's to be a part of the story. And there is an aura and mystique around these items because they belong to a murderer. It's a cautionary tale of someone who thought they were so powerful and wealthy they could do anything, and yet they can't. So there's a whole interesting kind of Greek tragedy behind it. Um, But it's also maybe vicariously thrilling to be close to a murderer in some way and be safe. And some people even believe it's like a talisman. It can protect you from evil. So there are a lot of different perspectives here. (laughs) Murderabilia,
1: really fascinating. All right, friends, thank you very much. For all of that, stick around. Uh, 2024 is looming, and of course, one of the big questions is: Should Kamala Harris still be on Joe Biden's ticket? We're going to discuss that next. All right. Vice President Kamala Harris making a major personnel move. She's hiring Stephanie Young, a veteran Democratic aide, as her new senior advisor, focusing on messaging and outreach. The vice president's performance in her role has been criticized, including by some Democrats. They're questioning whether having her on the ticket will hurt Biden's chance of reelection. My panel is back with me and our friend Doug Hyde joins us now. Great to have you, Doug. Thank you. Um, Okay, so in... Uh, 2020, um, Hagar, you wrote a piece on CNN.com about how um, having Vice President Harris, you basically called it Biden's chief foreign policy appointment, his running mate, and you argued that she would be a great asset, I guess, Mm -hmm. in foreign policy. So what has happened since then?
7: Well, I argued this because she had a number of stances while she was on Capitol Hill in favor of human rights, against dictatorships, and was was strong in her voice and opinion. And that's what I thought our foreign, foreign policy needed. That's certainly what the president said that he would do when he got to office, that he would make human rights a central tenet of our foreign policy. But then when she got to office, she wasn't really given portfolios that matched anything in foreign policy. Why not? It's, it, the only thing I can try and I don't know the real, the, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, estimate here or guess here is that having been in the White House and worked on that side, it can get territorial between the Vice President's office and the National Security Council, which staffs the National Security Advisor and the President. And President Biden has had decades of experience in foreign policy. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not criticizing his, uh, decisions or, um, or his experience or, or the decisions he's made, but, She's an asset. And so I thought that and I assume that she would have been more included. She is a woman of color. That's a great representation to have for the United States on the world stage. And it just doesn't seem like she was deployed in a way that I thought would be very effective. Doug, you've been around Washington a long time. What
1: do you think has gone wrong with the fit? For, because people just don't I mean, from, you know, as you know, you hear the buzz. They, they have they don't know that she's sort of found her footing in this role.
17: Well, look, every, every vice president faces at some point some question about, are they going to be on that ticket or not? And we so often talk about in politics, are they playing three-dimension chess or what, what have you? Politics is not three-dimension chess. It's checkers. And it's very simple for Biden <laughs> and his team at this point. Your most powerful demographic for your voting block, your, your core base, African-American women. So there's no chance... That, that Joe Biden is going to kick Kamala Harris off this ticket at all unless he says, I want to have a campaign that is going to be on really rocky ground at this point. African-American women, your core base, Kamala Harris is there. She's going to stay there. That's it. I understand the politics
1: of what you're saying. But in terms of what has, do you think something has gone wrong with the vice president? Do you think she's deploy, been deployed well or there's been some tension or something?
5: Well, fr- first of all, if someone, if a whole group of people think something about you in politics, it's your fault. And she can make all the excuses in the world that she wants. There is a branding and image problem, and that's reflected in the numbers. But with that being said, though, no one's a good vice president. OK, we still make fun of Quayle. we still make fun of Gore, we still talk about Cheney as wasn't Darth Joe Vader, Biden, Wasn't I mean? Joe
1: Biden more high profile, more high profile wait, 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 than Kamala Harris the, the,
5: the entire story of 2021 was that all these Obama aides were still making fun of Joe Biden, even though he was now the president, because for eight years they ignored him as the vice president. Let's not lionize Joe Biden's tenure as vice president. In fact, perhaps some of the story here is that the abused go on to abuse Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden said, Joe Biden said, oh, God bless you, Kamala Harris. I'm going to give you space and the border. Now go out there and do great things. No wonder people are talking about her not accomplishing the mission in front of her. They were impossible tasks. Mm-hmm. So I, I think ultimately, <clears throat> nonetheless, can't take the politics out of politics. The rule, the, the facts are the facts. But so he keeps her
1: on the ticket.
10: Definitely. Oh, yeah. He definitely does. Uh, first of all, to Doug's point. Totally agree. And I'm not just saying that here. My talking points in advance were right in accord with you. I don't think that you thumb your nose at a community that's so central to your popularity and central, quite frankly, to your success. The other thing is I think this is an opportunity for him. Exert your leadership. There are going to be times where people think people are... Unpopular. What are you going to do? Are you going to fold? Are you going to say to the haters and the naysayers that I'm standing up, I'm standing above, and I'm sticking with you? And I think it's an opportunity for him to do that. And if he does it well, I think he can move forward and move on.
7: And what can she do differently, okay? So listen, I, I uh, while I agree with the politics, I actually think they have to seriously consider move whether or not they replace her with someone else. Oh. There is precedent for it. It's happened before. When um, when Ford became president, he had Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president, and when he ran again, he had Bob Dole as his new running mate. So it's happened before. He didn't win, but it's happened. But what before. about their point that that you know black women
1: voters really like her being on the ticket?
7: Do they? I mean, I mean, how strongly do they feel about that? See, I mean, I'm not saying about the community is important. This is an important community. But the latest article I read actually on CNN said that, that the majority of the Democratic base doesn't view that I don't want to mess these. I don't want to mince these words because I want to be very careful here. Yep, that there. it is not placing a heavy emphasis on diversity in this role. Now, I think yep. that it's important to have diversity in this role. I don't want to see Pete Buttigieg there, or you no. know, no. really
1: interesting. I yeah. agree with you. I don't want yeah, I mean, to see Pete I like I Buttigieg. You, are you talking <laughs> to you? during so the commercial bad.
7: break. It's been a busy week
1: in the news. <laughs> have you been paying attention to everything that's happened? We're going to quiz our panel on what they know. But before that, CNN's presentation of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher right after this. Let's turn it over now to our friends at HBO every Friday. After Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions with their unique perspectives. We're excited to bring you this lively discussion first every Friday night. So here is Overtime with Bill Maher.
18: Okay, here we are on CNN with our panelists this week. David Sedaris is over here with his new book out. Professor of Marketing at New York's Stern School of Business, Scott Galloway. And the... Great writer for the Atlantic Andy Lowry, and here are the things that people want to know about. Um, OK, a group of conservatives recently said they want to create an AI chatbot of their own to combat liberal bias. Can we Well, I've heard there was liberal bias. I heard, I've read that, that that chatbot is a little woke. Uh, can we expect AI to be used as a political weapon in the near future? I think it already is. I mean, it's funny that you you create something that is supposed to be smarter than everybody and above it all, and immediately we're breaking down into, you know, we're gonna. that's what it's going to be. You're going to have the liberal chatbot and the conservative, right?
19: Yeah, and there's some myths. So, like, traditional media, I think it's hard to argue that there isn't oftentimes a liberal bias because it's mostly over-educated people in urban centers, but with respect to new media and technology-driven media, there's no evidence that there's any sort of bias. They don't lean left, they don't lean right, they lean green. They're all about money. They really don't care. As a matter of fact, seven of the 10 each day, most viral pieces of content are usually from conservative commentators. So there's just no truth to the notion that at least online media has a conservative bias. Hmm. I know people I'm sorry, who- a liberal bias. Excuse me. Oh. All right.
18: <laughs> uh, David, is there any material you wouldn't perform in red states? Oh,
11: um, you know, I think I've heard you say this before. You know, I'll I go love... to Oklahoma, and people say,
18: "Who was there?"
11: And it's like everybody who didn't vote Republican is there.
18: So I do. Or, or that, or some who did. I hope they all come. I welcome everybody in my, yeah. and I'm sure you do too.
11: Uh, I don't oh. like it. No. <laughs> No? No, I do. I, but I don't like, you know, like sometimes you do a show and you get a laugh from people and you think, eh, that didn't feel right to me. I don't want to pander to the audience. No. You know, I don't want to. So I'm happy to go to a red state.
18: Right. And, and quite frankly, there is more to make fun of on the left in the last five years. I mean, I see right. it in your book, too. You know, people ask me that all the time. Why do you make fun of the left more? Because you're providing comedy for He's a comedian. Here. That's why. Yeah. It's blue archipelago, right? All the
12: cities are blue. If you just want to talk to Democrats, yes. you just go to cities, right? It, regardless of the
18: state. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, I've, Alabama. I've been... I played Mobile, Alabama and some Yeah,
11: other. the only thing... You've got to bring your own hotel, though, when you go to... Uh, to uh, That's uh, not, In no, Mobile,
18: Alabama. Uh, uh, I w- I w- one of the times <laughs> I was in Alabama, I swear, there was a bass fishing something the same night and I was going out to the show and on there was a a I swear to God there was a large crowd walking one way that I could tell was for the bass fishing <laughs> I won't go into details and then my crowd was going in the opposite direction and it could have been any city in the country so I mean and that's Alabama okay what do you make of <laughs> Xi and Putin's meeting well boy they exchanged uh, friendship bracelets didn't they <laughs> Me and Putin. I, I'll,
19: you, go, you go first, but then I'll tell you. Her. I think that's the biggest and scariest news of the week. While we're all scared about, I don't know, we're worried about trans swimmers or worried about <laughs> our kid marrying a Republican, the real threat is an Axis power forming between Russia and China, and cool. it should be scary. there... China... You know, China of, of today is different than China of 10 years ago, and they're they are they're not a competitor. They're adversaries and maybe even enemies. The swing vote will be India, but we should absolutely be... It should have sent chills down the spine of every American seeing those two together. Well, I, I mean, I was mentioning on the sh- show that
18: uh, in the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War... Yeah. yeah. I think this is a result of that. Uh, I think, you know, when... Well, in the sense that... Xi and Putin see America. They saw 20 years ago, we invaded a sovereign country. Yeah. I mean, we, we would make the case that we had reasons that Putin doesn't have in going into Ukraine, but that's not how they see it. So their view is, and yes, China and Russia never had any love for each other. Even during the Cold War, when they were both communists and they should have been allied closer, it was very frosty. But their idea is we have to just be, number one is to be anti-America. America is the one that's trying to bully the world We've seen it over and over again, and we have to line up against them. That, I think, is the scary part, is because they're going to get more people to join in Mm -hmm. on that premise.
12: Yeah, and I think that there's the eternal folly that wars are won quickly, which we learned twice that that wasn't true recently. And I think that the Russian engagement in Ukraine is going to last for many, 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 many years to come, weakening that state considerably. And it's terrifying. I, I don't know. Uh,
18: okay. Uh, a school principal at a Florida school recently resigned after parents complained that students were shown Michelangelo's David. Oh.
12: It's a nice sculpture.
18: <laughs> <laughs> was it really appropriate or just an example of parents being too fragile about what their kids are taught in schools? Wait, the, was... This prince had to resign because he showed David is a great work of art. Uh, now, yes, the dick is out, but well, it is. And it was no bigger than the students. <laughs> I was going to say it would probably bolster the confidence of a sixth grader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a very uh, you know the,
19: the name of that statue should be. It was cold out. <laughs> I, I, I serve on the board of my kids' school in Florida, and the notion that we're trying to pull the gay or the straight out of them is just ridiculous. We, schools aren't trying to turn kids into worksters. We're trying to turn them into warriors. And these culture wars that divide us and use schools as weapons to inflame some weird imaginary problem in schools... It's just, it's another example of instead of working on the things that actually affect us, people want to figure out what offends us so they can raise money. It's a bullshit topic. Yeah, it's,
18: um... Hey, you
12: know, the, you're the...
18: on CNN. Watch your mouth. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> keep keep sorry your swear words out of your sorry mouth. Sorry <laughs> uh,
12: You know, the, the Southern strategy as the most effective political strategy that we've seen deployed in the United States in the past hundred years. And I think that we are seeing Republicans attempt to turn anti-trans legislation, anti-LGBTQ legislation into a kind of version of the Southern strategy uh, that whips voters up. And I think that it remains to be seen how that, you know, certainly in the midterms, it didn't seem to work terribly well. But, of course, what's at risk is the health and safety of children uh, and the rights of Americans to live how they want and love who they want. So, yeah, it's awful. (laughs) Uh,
18: Okay, Kristen... Kristen Cinema, Kristen or Kirsten? Kirsten. Kirsten? Kirsten. Kirsten. Okay, Kirsten. See, I got it. Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> she's a senator from Arizona. She's now an independent, right? She was elected as a Democrat, but uh, was not quite democratic enough for the party, uh, or liberal enough. So she's an independent. Uh, recently said she's not going to eat in the cafeteria anymore because it's just <laughs> old dudes eating Jello. <laughs> 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 Well, I'm telling you. See, aren't you glad you're listening to this show? You know what? I know I've
11: lost so much weight eating diet Jello. Really? <laughs> Jello's great.
18: <laughs> I don't think that's the point she was going for, but, I, but you know, as a as a tangential topic. Is
12: regular er, Jello like? It a lot, it has
18: of, a lot calories? of calories in it, yeah. Okay. Well, but, sure, it's all sugar like everything I else know in about
6: it. it.
11: But jell jello is 40 calories for the whole box. And you're feeling hungry, and you eat two boxes of jello, and you're full, and that's 80 calories.
18: Jello. We drink <laughs> it here on CNN. <laughs> we haven't. <it> for- <laughs>
19: okay. All right, it's gotta, it's
18: gotta be. Any, any thoughts on the uh, old people
19: drinking jello? Because you're yeah, I think, talking. I think, her, I think her, what she was saying is that our elected representatives are probably not representative of America. The average age of American is 38. The average age of an elected representative is 64. Meaning every time someone like AOC is elected to Congress, someone else is dead. I mean, it's, it's. <laughs> we and yeah. what do you know? Cost of living adjustment biggest in history for Social Security recipients and the tax credit, the child tax credit gets stripped out of the bill. We don't have a representative government. We have um, basically people who are uh, much older running our government. We need more youth. We have the second oldest elected populace. We don't have a representative government.
12: I'd also say um, cinema is one of the few politicians, I think, on the Hill who retains a capacity to surprise And, um, you know, that feels like Well, also,
18: kind of like to tell it like it is. I mean, I don't... Maybe. I don't think she was making so much of a political statement as just saying, I don't want to eat with Steny Hoyer. Yeah. I think a lot of members
12: of Congress don't necessarily want to sit down and eat with Kirsten Sinema at this point either.
18: (laughs) Uh, But we love all politicians in this show, but we have to be mindful of um, advertisements here on CNN. So (laughs) eat your Jello, and we'll see you next week.
1: That was fun. We always love Overtime. And you can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 1130. And we'll be right back.
9: Is that right? Unbelievable.
5: <laughs> it's like. It's, it's
1: very like All right, everybody. It's Friday night. And you know what that means. It's news quiz night. Let's see what my panelists know about this week's news stories. Okay, everybody. I have a quiz for you. Let's see how much happen. you've been paying attention. Here's the first question. Now, when I say three, you're going to turn over your answers. Okay, get ready with your questions. But pals. do we
10: have to be quick to it? No. Do we? no okay. No, 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 so no. we could just... That is right. not, that's but not a moment.
1: there problem. are no buzzers. There are no buzzers. Well, <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. Maybe there is a buzzer. I can't remember if we have a sound effect. There's we'll no see. prize, though. Okay. An Oreo cookie. Oreos. Yes. Okay, All right, here we go. Okay. Number one. This week, President Xi and President Putin met for talks. Where did they meet? A, Beijing. B, Moscow. C, Mariupol. One, two, three. Hmm. It's Moscow. Joey. uh... I said that. Yes.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Joey said A.
1: Okay. Uh Uh, Moving on. Uh Uh, Number two. President Biden issued his first veto this week for a bill that would A, ban the word woke, B, mandate all cars sold to be electric by 2025, C, overturn a retirement investment rule. One, two, three. Okay. Yeah, you're all right. It is C.
17: Doesn't the investment rule ban the word woke though? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you guys are smart. Okay, moving I on. know that one. Just uh, number three. Uh, I, I cheated. On okay, stop cheating. Stop cheating. Okay, turn over guess. your things. Okay, number three. A dentist accused of killing his wife googled a how to dispose of a hundred twenty pound body, b how to make poison, or c can someone OD on laughing gas? Okay, choose your. Answers now, panelists. In one, two, three. Okay, you said B B A A. The bees have it. Oh, to hey. no. make poison. <laughs> that is the answer to that one. Okay. It is rigged. <laughs> it is not rigged. The, Next. Like the 2020
5: election. Here we right? go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> like the 2020
1: oh, election. Number three. Uh, <laughs> researchers at Columbia University this week used a 3D printer to print a a vegan cheesecake. B, a soccer ball, or C, a pair of shoes? Did researchers at Columbia University print A, a vegan cheesecake, B, a soccer ball, C, a pair of shoes in one, two, three? Thank you. Only A has it. Only what Doug the? knew it. Oh, How man. You- I was no, going
17: to say it cheesecake. Because so. if it's 3D printed, it has to be vegan if it's a cheesecake, because the 3D can't print milk. Food?
12: That's interesting
1: logic, Doug. That's. that's, that's yeah. I, I don't know if how you got If it's a three D printer, <laughs> the
17: cheesecake is going to be right, vegan. but
1: why couldn't they have printed a soccer uh, ball? Max, they could it? have, Max. What, what he,
17: vegan, said. Uh, he said. Vegan? If you uh, said cheesecake, uh,
10: uh, I don't uh, know what uh, I would have yeah. done.
1: But <laughs> vegan. I mean, this guy clearly has right.
5: access to the answers.
3: All
1: right, <laughs> 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 no. or that. Moving we'll on. We'll um, okay, the Fed raised interest rates again this week. How many times have they hiked it over the past year? A five, B eight, C nine. In one. Two, three. Only Joey Jackson oh! has it nine times. Wow, nine, Joey, nine, Joey Jackson. Nine times. I didn't
7: realize nine it was nine times. Wow. Nine times.
10: Ferris Bueller's day off.
1: <laughs> okay, guys, one more, one more, so and going. then we're gonna see who won. Okay, here we go. As young actors, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon shared a a Jeep Cherokee, b a checking account. Or see a Dunkin' Donuts uniform. Okay, in one, two, three, and it goes to Joey a oh check-in. Unbelievable! <laughs> Look at that!
10: Boom
5: lot Okay, now I
1: I think that I wasn't moderating properly because I didn't wasn't counting who was winning. Who won?
10: It's clear.
5: We,
1: we're
10: all we winners. Yeah. We okay. are all winners. We you all are. get a trophy, Alice You way all. You all get a trophy,
1: <laughs> vegan cheese. <That's
2: G-K>. <laughs> <it goes>. You <laughs> all get an Oreo. <laughs> That's
1: the way it goes. Everyone, thank you very much. Feel free to let me know how you did on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me, or Twitter. Okay, up next, the Museum of Failure, which is a lot more fun than it sounds. It's featuring some of the biggest flops in history, and you'll definitely remember a few of these. New York's newest attraction is called the Museum of Failure, and it's dedicated to products that bombed with the public. Remember Crystal Pepsi? Consumers were not impressed by clear soda. They said it tasted too much like regular Pepsi. Rival Coca-Cola had a major bomb with Coke 2, which was dubbed New Coke, but consumers were furious that the original recipe was changed. The company quickly realized its mistake and rebranded the old formula as Coca-Cola Classic. Then there were potato chip lovers who turned up their noses at fat free Pringles. They were made with a chemical additive known as Alustra, which had the unfortunate side effect of causing a lot of consumers to have gastrointestinal issues. And Google's splashy product, Google Glass, had smart glasses with built in cameras. It was a smashing failure. The technology never really worked, and the prominent camera freaked people out over privacy concerns. The museum notes that users were dubbed glass holes. On that note, thanks so much for watching, everybody. Have a great weekend. Our coverage continues now.